Aloha mai kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation. Come, come. I'm Noe Tanigawa. I am so glad you're here. We're looking back at a time of incredible energy in Hawaii, the 1970s. Political involvement and voices of reform crescendoed at the 1978 Hawaii Constitutional Convention, or CONCON. That's where many of Hawaii's unique perspectives were embedded in the Constitution that we live by today. Former Governor John Waihe'e was a student at UH Richardson School of Law in the early 70s. He was also a delegate to the CONCON. And when we spoke at his office in Honolulu, he set the stage for the 1970s by talking about the democratic revolution that preceded it, the time when Hawaii's Nisei, or second-generation Japanese, returned from World War II service and college via the GI Bill. Waihe'e says what they did, upending the big five plantation owners in Hawaii, was the first revolution. In my opinion, if you look at it from like the bird's eye view, there were revolutions in revolutions. And let me explain what I mean. In 1954, the Nisei came back to Hawaii. They were determined. They were not going to put up with you know, what they had to live under prior to World War II. They came back and they created a revolution. They took over the political system. They changed Hawaii. And, and they changed the culture of Hawaii to go from a continent-dominated system to what they considered was, in, in a sense, indigenous. Not indigenous meaning native, but indigenous meaning local. Mm-hmm. And so you, you begin to feel that there was these guys changing to something what they thought was better. And that was manifest with, for example, the passage of, of programs, for example, workers' compensation, you know, all of these things was a very progressive agenda. The first revolution, these people coming back saying we're going to no longer be second-class citizens. The driving force was no more second-class uh. in Hawaii. So education ought to be universal. All of these things was a general mm. consensus that the people who were living here, particularly immediately after the war, came back and did. And then we were also going to develop our economy. And so tourism came, jet planes came, housing mm. started to be built. This had general consensus. And That's a positive thing. Well, as yes. As an alternative it, to it, the plantations. It, yeah, it, it sure. was. Hawaii was, uh, as far as most people were concerned, on the side of the civil rights, right? But be, you begin to see the Vietnam War coming up. That was the first, like, change. Uh-huh. Beginning what we call, uh, you know, maybe the gentleman of the re- Renaissance, because the guys who were building Hawaii starting from 1954 until 1970 all served in the military. Nobody could be more pro support America than the guys who, despite their discrimination, went to fight for America in Europe. <laughs> so true. You yeah. know? But their kids are saying, hey, this war in Vietnam is uh, not the same. This is crazy. See? So you begin to see the shift, all right? And that starts at the University of Hawaii. And then people started to then discover maybe all this development that's going on is not really helping because what was happening was part of the economic development was for, um, was for you know, housing to be built, we're going to do new things. We're going to open up Waikiki. We build the Elakai Hotel. We do big stuff. We're going to do all of these things. Spinning out of the University of Hawaii is a organization called Kokua Hawaii. And Kokua Hawaii was, uh, was a multi-ethnic, local-based, young people's protest against what they perceived to be of the excesses of their parents. The guys who Uh were building Hawaii, or their uncles, or whatever, right? And so the protests, I mean, were really physical. They were there. They were there There. at the, you know, gates to the farm. That's part of the milieu of all of this, Uh and it starts to grow. What we call the Cultural Revolution, Uh in its own way, at least on the political side of it, 
starts to shift. And, and was then, that an economic connection? Because this well, is where Aloha Aina... It, it, Aloha Aina comes because what happens when you're protesting is that you kind of needed a, 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 a philosophy. You needed a philosophy. So incorporated in the in the eviction fights, which by the way went from Kalama Valley, Chinatown, Ota Camp, Hoban to Waihole, Waikani. And in that process, you needed a kind of a philosophy. But the idea is they're beginning to oppose rampant development. Up until now, these protests are pretty much um, multi-ethnic. A and also because Ota mm -hmm. Camp was about Filipino rescuing Sand Island too. Sand Island was a it was a fisherman's thing, mm -hmm. you know. And, but meanwhile, what happened? What happened to Hawaii? Because again, we're living with a, a progressive government, so Hawaii had social services, model cities, Office of Economic. The war on poverty came to Hawaii, right? Huh. And so uh -huh. the war on poverty organized poverty neighborhoods like Waimanao like Kalihi Palama, like Waianae, like the rest. And the basis of uh, these organizations was maximum citizen participation. So the programs used to encourage people to take the leadership of their own programs. So in places like Waimanalo, you had people like Pai Galdera, Randy Kalahiki, all of these, like the, these names that get to be very famous in the Hawaiian uh -huh, Renaissance. Uh -huh. There becomes a little subgroup that starts looking at Hawaiian issues in specific. That's former Governor John Waihe'e and a head. He explains how Hawaiian culture and values became central to Hawaii's move into the future after the 1978 Constitutional Convention. This anthem, Hawaii 78, was written by Miki Iowane and made famous by the Makaha Sons and Israel Kamakavila Ole. We're exploring Hawaii's cultural renaissance in the 1970s. The music was great. And the first of this new musical generation to make it big was the folk-pop duo known as C&K, Cecilio Rodriguez and Henry Kapono Kaaihue. Their music was the quintessential, sunny, optimistic soundtrack to a period of profound change. The music was a huge unifier, and it still is. Henry Capono performs every Sunday at Duke's. He's got a great YouTube channel, Henry's House. He's been pumping ever since that first CNK album in 1974. I figured, you know, it's time we get to know him a little bit better. I grew up in Kapuhulu. Parents full blood Hawaiian? Full blooded Hawaiian. Yep. Hmm. How did you feel that growing up? As being Hawaiian? Mm. <laughs> Well, there wasn't that big of an emphasis on being Hawaiian back then, you know. My parents never really spoke Hawaiian in front of us because their experience was that they would get uh, punished for s speaking Hawaiian in school or or in the public or wherever they were. So they didn't want us to, to experience that same thing, so they wouldn't talk teach us Hawaiian. They just had this rich language they could use to talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> but they did teach me about aloha, so that was most important. It's really the key to Hawaii and Hawaiian, uh, being Hawaiian. It's knowing what that is. That's not, that's not just the word. It's, it's, it's so many things. What comes to mind when you say it's so many things? Well, yeah. um, I think it has... Um, Things like love, love is love, happiness is happiness, joy, joy is joy, 
But aloha is all of that. If you feel feel it, you know it's not just some. It, it could just be a word to most people, but if you know what it what it feels like, then it becomes more mm-hmm. spiritual and more of a um, uh, a gift. So, uh, are you from a big family? Um, eight of us. Um, mm-hmm. five, who, were, who were the musicians? Five sisters and two brothers. Oh. I'm the only one who went professional. We all play by ear. Huh. My dad played a ukulele, and he would come home from work and sit down in his chair, pick up his ukulele, play, go to sleep, <laughs> take a nap, mm-hmm. and um, you know. And then I learned how to play a ukulele from from him. So. Mm-hmm. But just really small kind. I really was a. More interested in sports, you know. Just a lot of athletes in my family. Baseball and, um, first. I played baseball for and little league, and um, I did really well, um, really well. And then I got a scholarship for baseball to go to Puno, and I ended up playing baseball maybe for one season, and then um, uh, they told me that they had a football uh, program there, so I went all right. Well, while football was my passion, music was my hobby, and then I went to the Far East, and then music became my passion, and uh, football was gone already. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess the story, your your band was booked in the Far East, and uh, maybe the tour fell through or something, and you were... Yeah, six weeks, we'll be in um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, yeah, let's do it. So two years later, I I got home and I was a musician. (laughs) (laughs) Got in your 10,000 hours. (laughs) Oh, oh, I know. When I look back at it, back at that, um, I believe that it was a lesson, school of hard knocks. You know, I got it in two years. You had all that under your belt and returned to Honolulu maybe, what, 1969, 1970? 71. 71. Yeah, I came back at the end of uh, 71. And then 72, I was playing around Waikiki. And then 73, uh, mm. I met um, Cecilio. Actually, I knew Cecilio before I went to Vietnam because mm. uh, he was in a group called the Unicorn. Mm. Definitely remembered the band. So when I got home, my uh, friend, I don't know if you remember, Johnny Sara, used no. to do caricatures. But he says, oh, hey, you know this guy, Cecilio Rodriguez? I said, oh, yeah, man, unicorn. He goes, yeah, you uh, you guys would sound good together. I said, yeah, I think we would. So I guess somehow uh, he talked some people into um, bringing Cecilio over. So they flew him over. I, <laughs> I mean, so when did you first <laughs> play together and what was that like? Well, when we uh, finally got together, our friends... Uh, uh, did a, a dinner out in Sunset at this um, this guy's place. Yeah, we sat down. We ate with uh, maybe about less than a dozen of maybe ten people. We ate and then we picked up our guitars and we said, "Well, let's start playing something." So we played. The first song we played was uh, Four and Twenty, and then we played that. And then we looked at each other's goods. It was like we practiced, you know. It was like we rehearsed it, and everybody at oh, the at the dinner rather. looked at it, at at us and went, "Whoa, that was amazing!" And then uh, so we played about maybe three songs, and we were blown away. And we said, "Well, when are we going to get together?" So what, we got. What did it feel like? It was just felt like uh, like we knew each other for a long, like we we're like we've been together for a long time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, uh, but we've only just met. But the thing is, we listen to the same, we like the same um, music. We listen to the same songs. So when we first uh, decided we were going to get together and got together, uh, we knew all, all these songs. So like who did, you, was, who did you bring to the room with you, kind of? You know? Loggins and Messina, who was else? Loggins Messina, James Taylor, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Sure. Um, you know all Santana. those all those guys. You know what? Santana, Elvin Bishop, Young Rascals. Young Rascals yeah. are one of my favorite. <laughs> so we got together one day, learned thirty songs, and we we're ready to play. And uh, our first gig was at 
was it the sea uh, out in Haleiwa? They used to have a seafarer or something. Small house like yeah. that. Yeah, and they had a rock band that was playing. That was um, the main uh, act, and it, we were the opening act. So we played our songs. All covers. Yeah, all covers mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, we just tried kind of getting to know each mm-hmm. other. That band, I think a year later, that band opened for us. Everything happened real fast. Yeah. No joke. Was, yeah. Did you did you kind of make your debut at one of those Sunshine Crater Festival things, the 73? Actually, we did a Crater Festival. We played on the small stage. Uh-huh. Uh, but we drew a lot of people. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and um, we were doing our thing. But then I, our big break was when... Um, you know, we're playing at a place called Rainbow Villa. Where was that? It was right in Kalakaua, at the end of Kalakaua, by um, by the Wave. Oh, the okay, wave? by Hobron. Right next to the Wave. So we were playing there, and nobody was there. Um, nobody came for three months. Nobody was, <laughs> Nobody knew who we was. But uh, so it was a good chance for us to rehearse. Okay. And just and drink tequila. <laughs> and start writing, or what? When did that uh, yeah, and we were writing as well. Mm-hmm. We were writing. And then um, <clears throat> we had an opportunity to open for Frank Zappa. And then oh. we played, uh, did our 15 oh. minutes, and we had a big response, a great response. Was it at the arena? <clears throat> at the uh, Civic, Civ- oh, Civic Civic Auditorium. Oh. I know, I'm flash- flashing back on all kinds of stuff. for Frank Zappa at Civic Auditorium. Wow, yeah. We had a big uh, response, and we were walking out, packed our guitars, walking out, and Frank Zappa comes out, and he says, where are you guys going? He says, uh, oh, we got a gig down in Waikiki. He goes, well, they want you back. You know, you get back up there and uh, you know, give them what they want. So we went back out there, and we played uh, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Oh, my and, gosh. And That's a people, didn't, people didn't stop uh, uh. cheering. And so we, we left. Went to our gig at the Rainbow Villa, and there was a line outside around the block. You go, wow, they must have hired somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) So we we walked in the door, and our seats were still there. And people were waiting for us. They were like, oh, there's those guys. We looked at each other going, that must be us. So so that was it. I think eight months later, we filled the house every night. It was amazing. Wow. Lines were outside till 1 o'clock in the morning. um, Really good stuff. Yeah, it was just amazing. And so that was where kind of the first album was was nurtured and, and yeah. Out so we were playing a lot of we started playing a lot of cover tunes in the beginning, and towards the end we were playing a lot of our own song, songs. Oh man! And people were really um, enjoying our our songs because a lot of those songs were about us, were about our life lifestyle then, not the just the, what we were doing, but what. We were surrounded by everybody was doing it, you know. So I think everybody related to to our songs, and then we put them off, did our first album. You know what's a great song on there? Song for someone. Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote that for my mom. She was out um, hanging their clothes outside, and where we lived in Kapahulu, you know, next door was a. Uh, uh, this guy had his, his um, I forget what they call those pigeons, where they fly around and they come back home. Homing Homing pigeons. pigeons. Yeah. A lot of people had those. In those <laughs> a days. lot of people yeah. had that. <laughs> the backyard. And then, you know, they had dogs and, and they had the chicken, and it was really cool. Everybody took care of each other. Parents, our parents knew my mm-hmm. friends, my friends' parents knew my, my parents. Everybody knew each other. It was safe, you know. We never locked our doors, you know. You, um, I remember we'd be eating, having lunch out in the yard. Somebody would walk by, some stranger or somebody, and my mom would say, come, come, come eat. Invite them over and have some, you know, eat with us, and then they'd be on their way. And you don't do that nowadays, you know. Oh, I, I know those yards in Kapahulu with the mango tree. Yeah, <laughs> the mango tree, yeah. I used to climb it all the time. Trying to concentrate on something that's fresh in my mind. The dogs are barking, the traffic's passing, and my tongue is tied. 
One of his compositions from the first C and K album. Much more music ahead. To write a song for you. Support for the Aloha Friday Conversation comes from Na Mea Hawaii, with locally sourced gifts, clothing, and jewelry, and featuring books about Hawaii. Open daily at 10 a.m. in Ward Village, online at NaMeaHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we remember Todd Gitlin, former president of SDS, who became a university professor. He died last Saturday. We'll hear the interview we recorded after the publication of his book, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. Also, my interview with Art Spiegelman, recorded after the publication of his book, Mouse, which was recently banned in some Tennessee schools. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. Experiencing the 1970s in Hawaii are for you. It could be the first time. <laughs> Diamond Ed Crater Festivals, the reemergence of Hawaiian language, and finding a philosophy to guide the use of resources. I mean, this was all part of the dynamism of the time. As former Governor John Wahe describes it, developments on a lot of different fronts came together at the 1978 Constitutional Convention, or CONCON. That's the birthplace of our current Constitution. Wahe also points to pivotal legal decisions by Supreme Court Chief Justice William S. Richardson, for whom UH Law School is named. Wahei says, federal programs and the progressive agenda enacted by post-World War II politicians helped pave the way for the Hawaiian Renaissance. Now, coming out of, really out of the war on poverty, there is a, a subgroup of dissatisfied revolutionists who are beginning to track Hawaiian things, specifically. Native Hawaiian things, right? And take root at UH, Manoa? No, they took root in the community. See, that's the difference. The community starts to build its own leadership. And facilitating that leadership were all these federal programs that were suddenly educating people to how to organize, how to do things. And while they're doing that in terms of specific economic projects, It didn't take long because the poor communities were also, in in a number of cases, Native Hawaiian communities. So that the spill-off became people who started saying, hey, you know what? It's happening right here, right here in Waimanalo, and we're standing on Hawaiian homelands. Why should these guys tell us how to do it? We need a better program. This will all graduate into 1978. So they start to, to do things. They start protesting the misuse of land. Like, for example, one group that starts up is the, um, what we call the Aloha Movement. Why? The Aloha Movement spins off the fact that simultaneously in Washington, D.C., under the guidance of a young senator from Hawaii who is the new chairman of the Indian Affairs Committee, there is a settlement being drawn up with the Alaska Natives. So people, Native Hawaiians, started to look around and say, are we entitled to any of this? Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that and researching, they begin to discover the ceded lands, what we now refer to as the ceded lands provisions of the Admissions Act and the like. 
the point is they're now dealing with Hawaiian homes, with uh, ceded lands revenues. Meanwhile, there are young uh, artisans beginning to express themselves and tr trying to recapture the language. And then you have a succession of people who have been around for a long time, but they get to be almost like folk heroes. Iolani <laughs> Luahine. Well, Iolani Luahine with uh -huh. the dance. Also Gabby Pahinui. Mm. And all of a sudden, Sons of Hawaii. All these people start coming back in, bringing that kind of music, that kind of stimulation into the political milieu of all of this. So you get the politics starts mixing with these cultural stuff and the Hawaiian, and, 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 and one of the most exciting things was the male hula. It, all of this comes together with two movements. Maybe around 1975 mm -hmm. is Protect Kahoolawe Ohana and the Hokulea. All of a sudden, you talk about a cultural overlay. They brought the spiritual aspects of the movement. It's about who we are. It becomes a, a, a spiritual dimension. The Kupuna Incorporated mm. and, 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 and the rest. All this stuff starts to fold together. Final piece of the whole expression of this, what you call the Renaissance, is we all of a sudden have this Chief Justice, Richardson, who writes a number of legal decisions that say something. They say water belongs to everybody, you can't own it. You How know? unusual is this point of view that he's... Well, it's completely opposite of the Western law. But it is very consistent with, with Hawaiian law, kingdom law. So all of a sudden you got this Chief Justice comes out with that decision, which is not. He comes out with the idea that nobody can own a beach. In Hawaii, this is the only state in the Union where people, you cannot buy a beach. You, the beaches belong to the public. Can you, how did he get to that? Well, that, so that, <laughs> that is part of the cultural milieu of the kingdom. You could not stop somebody from their subsistence, which was the ocean. And so when Chief Justice throws this in, this is just before 1978. Now, hmm. even if we're dealing with this Western framework called the Constitution, we now have a foundation. And so, you know, the rest is kind of legendary. I mean, you know, Auntie Frenchie, when she took over the Hawaiian Affairs Committee. Auntie Frenchie de Soto right, from West yeah. Side. Which she did a couple of, she was very active. Kankan, Constitutional entire Kankan, Convention in 1978. I mean, yeah. this is like, it's legendary. 1978, she hired all the activists. They became her staff. So these Hawaiian activists, guys like Walter Ritty and others, were walking the halls of the convention, gathering votes for various propositions. Okay, so the kuleana for Hawaiian homes was the Hawaiians. The kuleana for ceded lands would be the Aloha movement. The kuleana for access rights belonged uh, the kuleana for water rights was Waihole Waikani. So all these community groups came together in 1978 and each of them worked on what they thought the solution ought to be for what they wanted to do. Incorporating all of that was also the idea of the culture, the language, the teaching. So you got, you got into the, the provision making Hawaiian a co-official language with English. You know, the only thing that Chief Justice Richardson ever personally actually lobbied for was for that. He told me that the reason is that with, without Hawaiian being the official language, these ancient documents that had to do with land, uh, mainly deeds and mm -hmm. agreements, were first translated into English, and English became the controlling document. Mm -hmm. See? Mm -hmm. Whereas some Hawaiian speaker would say, that's not what that means. Be, yeah. But the translation controls. So he said, you need to make the language equal of equal force. Now, the rest of the Constitution contained many other revolutionary things. 
So and, many and things this that is, you outline are, are, are things we still deal with, though. Well, uh, sure. Access, water, all, all of, of them. these. And, but guess what? That's been the agenda for the next 40 years. Yeah. So what the, <laughs> what the CONCON did was it presented the political agenda and the cultural agenda for Hawaii. And who would have known that? The day after it all passed and it actually all became law was the day that the resistance to it all began. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? There's always pushback, you know. Immediately after we passed, the, the constitutional provisions passed, the legislature increased the standards for ratification of constitutional amendments. If the current standard for the ratification existed in 1978, a number of these provisions, the Hawaiian provisions especially, and land provisions would not have passed. Are you getting any kind of feeling that there is that sort of excitement around ideas or excitement around ex well, accomplishing I, I, I think there. I think it's the exact opposite. The one thing COVID has contributed to all of this is the lack of interpersonal relationships. You know, one of the most brilliant speeches in the 1978 Constitution, for me, was done by... Uh, he, he became a stockbroker. He was fantastic. He became he was a stockbroker. Oh, I know who you mean, a jazz lover. Uh, Pete Peter Thompson. Thompson. Pete Thompson is a very articulate guy. He was with Waiholi Waikani. He said, with people like themselves, which are the people who are on the outs, we vote with our bodies. I can close the legislature down, but I don't have the money to win an election. With COVID, you can't go and close the legislature down. See, one of my early experiences in life was watching Lena Riverio, who was the leader of the Welfare Recipients Association from Kalihi Palama, close down the Hawaii State Legislature in 1975. Eventually, <laughs> they redid the budget. People that don't have economic means vote with their bodies and without being able to do that this is the kind of government we have former hawaii governor john wahey has a private legal practice in downtown honolulu we had some laughs about territorial tavern and comedy in the day remember Rap Replinger's Poidog album came out the same year as the Con Con, 1978. It's a story about the day I died. Body surfing point panic and got caught in the tide. Swept 500 miles out to sea. It took the Coast Guard for days to find me. I was deaf here, I never likely sent. Now I stay queens in critical condition. My friend Bernard came in and said, Waste time I came, I thought you was dead. I said, Bernard, do one favor for me. Give my aloha to the people you see. And especially, tell Fate Yanagi I love her. I Tell Fate Yanagi I need her. Tell Fate Yanagi no go cry and no go out with Mitsufunai. <laughs> Rap Replinger's Fate Yanagi, yeah, 1978. Composer, guitarist, vocalist Henry. Kapono Kaaihui was describing the Honolulu music scene in the 1970s. A lot of small venues, a lot of bands. His first album with Cecilio Rodriguez was a blockbuster. It came out in 1974 called Cecilio and Kapono. It was nine originals and the album started like this. Soaring like a bird I'm When you dropped that first album, Cecilio and Capone, the green cover, the Aloha shirt. I mean, so memorable, right? Yes. Every single song, 
all killer, no filler. This is yeah. one of those you can play right through. The first one, feeling just the way I do. Any any album's going to start like that. You've got to expect a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, I mean, how, how how did you guys work together writing? Um, we wrote um, individually. So we would bring a song and go, oh, let's work this out. And then we'd arrange it together, you know. If it was my song, I'd sing it. He'd do the harmonies. If it was his song, I'd do the harmonies. He'd do the melody. And it just worked out that way. Yeah, let's see. Now, what were you writing at that time? Um, which of these songs were yours? Friends? Right. Oh, yeah, so good. I wrote Friends in um, California. Our first gig in California was at a place called the Ironworks. Actually, we're playing at what is now known as Silicon Valley. You know, because we were dark skin, long hair, hippies. When we'd walk in, uh, families would be having dinner, and we'd walk in, and everybody would stop talking. And then it, everything started to turn around because kids from Hawaii were going to school at Stanford and all these schools around there, and they heard we were in town, okay. so it was packed. And then um, we had invited to go down to L.A. to um, play for um, the record companies at the Troubadour. Oh, God. And, um, <laughs> the big make-it-break-it yeah. venue. Oh, that that night, I think, um, who was there? Rick Springfield was there. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen oh, was there. Oh. All these guys that were uh, trying to get a, get on a label. We did our 15 minutes, and... After that, we got uh, uh, entertained by all these different labels, and then we went with Columbia. Columbia was the biggest one in, in the world. Walked away with a prize from there. Well, we signed everything off, but uh, you know that's how it was during the back in huh. the days. Uh-huh. So we gave it away, but thank God the music was so good, and it was made such a big impact here in Hawaii. That it's kept us alive and kept us going, and um, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful for it. We're just uh, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, you put it all together somehow. Yeah, and then we put them off, did our first album, and then the band that backed us up was James Taylor's band. <laughs> See, that's what you get for working in Columbia. Right? Yeah, I know, you know. So that's the band behind this first album of yours. First album, yeah. And you know, because you, you hit the party songs, you come on with a lifetime party. And you you dig down deep for some feelings as well. If this world were a flower garden And your smiling face a flower there is Sunflower with the golden hair. To look at it, I would know I mean, you. you know what? What is the Hawaiian Renaissance to I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was that a lot of the artists were starting to write their own songs. A lot of artists had their own uh, identity. I mean, you had Ox or Siwen. After us was Kalapana, oh, yeah. Comfort, Country Comfort. All these groups were coming out and making their own music. Right. Um, and there's comedy, too. Comedy, yeah. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Booga Booga, Rap Erfinger. It was a great time. Mm. And throughout your music career, though, I've, there's this, this continuous sense of positivity. Walking on the sunny side of the street, however, Henry... You totally stabbed me in the heart with One Man 2020. Oh, yeah. I was working with uh, Greg Monday, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. we were in California, and I had to do one more song, and I wanted to do this one song and find all these um, these quotes by by great people. On the day of the, the recording, I just started writing. One man say, I'll make an excellent deal on your home and all of your land. One man say, I can get you dirt cheap and expensive term life insurance plan. 
And one man said, I can sell you this fine looking automobile for a very good price and no strings attached. One man said, I'll make you a rich man in 30 days. And my friend, I'll give you your money back. Give you your money back. One man said, I would do my best for my country, my people, my life, and my earth. One man said, I have the power of the people. How much can I hold on to as I walk on the shifting times of my birth? And one man said, with your vote, I promise to do such and such, this and that. All you ask will you give me a chance. And one man said, it's time for change, the real range, and let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Which one do we believe? Let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Comes Which out in the 2020 version. It's kind of Dylan-esque, so it takes you back to that era. And But the, the speaking form is kind of hip-hop, too, right now, uh, so it fits in completely. And what you're saying, 50 years later, it's the same thing. And it, just, <laughs> it really says something. Yeah, it, it says everything, you know, everything I'm feeling and everything I think um, we need to, we need to uh, be aware of as um, human beings. Having kids really made me... Think more about my not just my future but their future, you know. So everything um, I started writing was with that thought in mind. Even until today, I write for for that for their future. Which one do we let lead? Life goes on without you. Which one? Whoa. I guess I'd just end the end with Highway in the Sun just because it's just so I don't know yeah wait, Highway in the Sun I wrote that in California we were on a tour um, going from Los Angeles to San Francisco and between between Ventura and Santa Barbara which mm-hmm. is like about maybe 16 miles uh-huh. it was uh, springtime you know, on Highway 101 between Ventura and Santa Barbara is the ocean, Pacific Ocean on one side, yeah. and then the California Hills. It was springtime. California Hills were beautiful. I said to my manager, I said, wow, you know, you guys have beautiful flowers here. And I just, you know, we were all kind of stoned, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he, he said, man, those are weeds. <laughs> I go, man, you got some beautiful weeds here. <laughs> I, I said, I, I'm going to write a song. And I wrote the song. By the time we got to Santa Barbara, the song was written already. Highway in the Sun. And, yeah, it's a, I love that song. I just, a lot of people love that song. You know? They can relate to it. It's like going on that drive. You know? so, that time of day. That time of day, that time of year, you know. And that time. Have you ever seen a yellow busted mountain? When California sun shines in the sky. Have you ever seen them dancing softly in the wind, painted night? There's a happy kind of feeling when the sun's out. Catch Henry Capono at Duke's on Waikiki Beach Sundays, 4 to 6. It's every Sunday at Casual. Or Facebook live stream, 5 to 6. Links, everything you need at henrycapono.com. Or links with this story at hawaiipublicradio.org. You got to feel it when you're riding down the highway and the sun. Everybody, you should see it. You got to Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. 
If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. going to like the new Hilo story maps on the Historic Hawaii Foundation website. They've intertwined stories, archival pictures, history, and topographical information to deepen our aloha for Hilo Town. Lokelani Brand is a senior archaeologist over at the ASM affiliates there. They're based in Hilo. Her graduate studies were focused on what's known as the POPO section of Hilo, but the entire area, she says, is rich with history and legends. So that was the hardest part, I would say, sort of. Where do you draw the boundaries, you know? Hilo, I mean, how much its activities are centered around its relationship to the water there coming down and and washing in definitely you know Hilo is known for its rain and its waters the story map sort of covers from Mokuola and it covers 45 places that that sweep around the bay going towards the Hamakua side yeah all the way to about Wainuenue Avenue there are three parts of it so P.O.P.O. is where P.O.P.O. is actually the land area lane to the west on the Hamakua side of uh, the Wailoa River. That area was a, a particularly important um, area during Hawaii's pre-contact period. There's several bodies of water in the area, and those natural ponds were transformed over time into uh, fish ponds. And so those resources became really vital for Ali'i, particularly during the reign of Kamehameha. He actually comes to Hilo and he stays at Piopio. And so we know that you know, the resources, the food, and all of that stuff was that was being produced from these areas was going to support his army and whatnot because they were actually preparing to embark on his sort of inter-island campaign. He came to Hilo specifically to Waiakea to have his Peleleo fleet of canoes built. You know, we see it today as almost this open green space, but in the past it was a major food production center and it was sort of the hub for Hawaiian royalty. It so enriches us, right, to know yeah. this stuff. And one of the really beautiful things about Hilo, and part of why I love it so much, is that, of course, Hilo has changed. You can go back two generations and one generation, and they'll tell you a, a different Hilo that they grew up in. And as much as Hilo has changed, you can still look at historic photos of Hilo and recognize where these places are and what they look like today. And that is really powerful, and that's why our use of historic photos throughout this map was so critical and such a powerful tool to convey that stories and the histories because there's so many wow moments as I like to just, you know, so that this coconut trees have been planted and they're there in the right. photo, they're babies. And we drive today and that's like the plants that welcome us when we drive through Hilo Bay today, you know. <laughs> it is really fun to look for a spot on the map and then try to find the that spot and then be able to read about what was there. For me, Learning about, you know, your home and the place that you grew up in is, it happens in these really little moments, right? In these little exchanges of stories and information, but it's, it certainly shaped how I see and how I interact with a place, you know, and what I hold near and dear to my heart. And, and as much as, like I said, Hilo has changed, there's so much about it that hasn't at the same time. People love that about Hilo, and that's what gives this town its charm and its glory when we know those things, we can appreciate those things, then we do a better job at protecting those things going forward. That we don't lose our town to a total transformation to the point that is unrecognizable. The beautiful thing is the story map was put together, you know, by people who who live in Hilo. You know, it was it was awesome. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And I really want to thank all of our collaborators, Kumukai from UH, all of her students. Um, Hawaii Historic Foundation, Lyman Museum, Cultural Service Hawaii is 
uh, incredible team to be a part of, and we really pulled it together. You did. Congratulations. And I know this project's only going to grow in the future. We heard archaeologist Lokilani Brand about Historic Hawaii Foundation's new Hilo story map. Think of it as a companion to Yelp next time you're in the ITO. Links with this story? Hilo, you're the best. Carlina Huna, I tell you. All right, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Mahalo for your company. Super fun today. You can share this show or listen again on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Go ahead, email anytime. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org or comment on your favorite social site. The conversation's a kako thing produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Sang, and Savannah Harriman Pote. Monday, Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Thanks for a great time. Next time, Kalapana and Protekahotlave Ohana. Till then, you know how to do Aloha Friday, right? Or do I have to get chemo back in for a lesson? <laughs> Till then, you're on your own. Happy Aloha Friday. Aloha Friday.